Well, it's good to be uh, with you all. It's good to be with you at our campuses at Lake Mary and Waterford, to the men and women at 33rd Street. So good to be with you. So we're in week two of the second part of the story of God, where we're looking at the, the story as we see it in Revelation. We started back in the fall in Genesis, looking at the creation account, the fall, and God's call to Abraham. And now we're looking at really how the story continues. And we see that by studying the book of Revelation. And if you were here last week, we talked about Revelation and how Revelation was never intended to be some scary book about the end of days. It's not some kind of secret puzzle or code that we have to discover or figure out. But in fact, it was a letter, and it was a letter written to Christians who are being persecuted to offer them hope. And so that's how it needs to be read. As you read Revelation, it needs to be read as a picture book, a book that's meant to show all of us ultimate reality, to kind of pull back the curtain and see things as they really are, to be able to see what is happening spiritually, because so often we can only see what's right in front of us physically. And the reason we're given this book, the reason the original people who who received this letter got it was so that they could have courage, so that they could act bravely no matter what came their way. So today, we're going to start by looking at the letters to the churches. Because when the book was written, when when the letter of Revelation was being written, it wasn't just written to individuals, but it was written, written to the church. Because the church is the way the story continues. We're not invited to participate in God's story just individually, but we're actually called to be a part of the story through, by, through being a part of the church. So we started in the fall by looking at what the church is. We, we started by looking at who the church is, what the church does. And if you've gotten the New Summit magazine, uh, it's right there on the cover. On the cover, it says, the church is people devoted to God in community, on mission for God's glory. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at these letters that are being written to these seven churches. We're going to look at just a few. We're not going to go through all seven. We're going to look at a few of them in hopes that we can have a better understanding of what it is that we're being called to, what it is we're being called to be a part of. But before we do that, um, someone came up to me last week and they asked a really good question. They asked about the seven stars that were in Jesus's hand. If you were here last week, we started in Revelation 1 where, where John comes face to face with Jesus as he really is, as he's always been. Remember, he's this huge kind of colossal, awe-inspiring being with, with hair as white as snow and eyes of fire. And, 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 a, and when he speaks, it's like a sword coming out of his mouth. And it says in his right hand... That's my left hand. In his right hand, uh, there were seven stars. And so someone came up to me and said, hey, what is that? What were the seven stars? Um, And and so I thought, well, that's a good question. I didn't really explain that last week. But seven, really any number, when you're reading Revelation, is important. The numbers all have significance. And seven is the number of completeness. It's the number of perfection. So whenever you see the word seven, it represents completeness. That's why the number of the beast is 666. That's why Damien, you know, little Damien has 666 under his ears and the omen. It's because that's incompleteness. That, that's the antichrist. That, that's not the completeness that we find in Jesus. So when Jesus is holding the seven stars, in fact, in Revelation 1, he tells us what the stars are. He says that the stars are the, 
the seven angels of the seven churches. And so when John sees Jesus holding the seven stars, what he's seeing is he's seeing Jesus have complete control over his church, that the church rests in the control and the authority of Jesus. And we hear it again right here in these, in these first verses to the church in Sardis. It says, um, it says something, if I can find what it says. Let me just look in the Bible. It says, all right, he says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And so he's got the seven stars again. And here he also says the seven spirits. And what this is talking about, this is talking about the Holy Spirit. And he's saying the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the completeness of the Holy Spirit is being sent from him, or it's being sent by him from the Father to all the believers and non-believers in the church in Sardis so that he can be known to them. And not only that, that it's through the completeness of the Holy Spirit that the flames of renewal will be fanned in this church that's dying. So that was a great question. I'm glad someone asked me. So if you have questions, ask me because I might have skipped over something that actually would be beneficial for all of us to know. So that being said, what can we learn from this letter to the church in Sardis? Well, I think we can learn what it is to rise to the occasion. I think in this letter, we can learn what it is to be great. How to make the church great. And remember, the church was facing persecution. It was being threatened. And as these letters were being written to the churches, Jesus was addressing a group of people who needed to be able to rise to the occasion. He was offering words of hope to make a person who needs to be great to become great. So do you need to be great this year? What will face you this year that will require greatness from you? As I was thinking about um, last year, um, I realized I, uh, I had to officiate uh, my uncle's funeral, who, uh, who died way too young uh, because of cancer, so kids don't smoke. And, um, and I can tell you, nothing really prepares you to pastor your mom or your grandmom through the loss of a brother or a son. I didn't know that I was going to encounter that this year. I also... Uh, Became a dad again after seven years, um, which I guess I did, I did know nine months in advance that that was going to happen. But, but I didn't know necessarily at the beginning that that would be in my future. In fact, last year, I, um, I did four funerals. And I have never done a funeral in my life before last year. And three of them were for people who died way too young. A mom uh, of two young girls, a dad of four, and like I said, my uncle. And there was a week last year in which I officiated a funeral, a wedding, and then it ended uh, with beach baptism. And I remember standing in the water at Bethune Beach and just being overwhelmed by all I had encountered in that one week. Such intimate and profound moments in people's lives. So what does this next year hold for you? What does 2016 hold for you? There's some things that you know about. Maybe a, a new job is coming up, or maybe this is the year you're getting married or you're graduating. But you don't know everything that this year will hold or what it will require of you. And I'm almost certain that at some point this coming year, you will be required to be great. Great. 
Now, what do I mean by greatness? I mean something more than you can offer in and of yourself. Something will come up in this year that is going to ask more of you than you can produce on your own. You know, uh, there are Christians right now who are suffering persecution very similar to the persecution that the early church suffered. And, uh, and we've got to remember that. I mean, it's almost hard to kind of talk about this letter of hope to people who are being persecuted when we, in our circumstances, when we know that we have brothers and sisters all across the world who really are facing death for the sake of Christ. And in fact, I think it'd be good for us just to pray for them right now. Um, let's just take one minute and just silently lift up our brothers and sisters uh, who even this moment might be facing death because of their belief. So let's, let's silently pray for a minute for them. Father God, you have heard uh, the prayers of your people. And we just pray for our brothers and sisters um, who now need hope. Who need to know what it is to act bravely. Who can believe fully uh, that you have got them. And Father, I thank you that even when we don't know how to pray or what to pray, that your word tells us that you, Jesus, are interceding day and night on our behalf. And so we ask that you would continue to intercede, especially for those who are suffering persecution. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So there are those who are, who are really suffering persecution. But that doesn't mean that this, this letter, this revelation, doesn't have something to speak to us right now in our circumstances here in America. Because most of us aren't fearful that we're going to lose our life tomorrow because of what we believe. But in fact, the letter that we heard read, the, the text for today, the letter to Sardis, was actually a church that was actually a lot more like us than, uh, than a persecuted church. In fact, Sardis wasn't being persecuted in the way that the other churches in the Roman Empire were being persecuted. It was a church that was actually thriving. It was in the city that had tremendous wealth, a city that was built up on a hill, that was fortified. There was just a lot of great things happening in this city. And the church was actually well-liked by the city because they did good work in the city. They helped the poor. They made life better for those around them. And so... Uh, they paid their taxes, so, so they were actually welcomed in this city. There wasn't really persecution of the church in Sardis. They were free to really worship and serve however they pleased. But we heard Jesus say to them, he says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You see, the danger of Sardis was not persecution. The danger of Sardis was what I believe is also the danger for you and I here at Summit. It doesn't come from overt hostility, but from the kind of comfortable conditions that lead to complacency. See, one commentator said of the church in Sardis that of the seven churches Jesus addresses, Sardis was among the lowest in spiritual fervor. Its accommodation to its religious environment shielded the church from persecution. For hardly anyone took notice. Its inoffensive lifestyle yielded religious peace with the world, but resulted in spiritual death in the sight of God. Another commentator put it this way, Sardis is the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. Ooh, that's, that, that's a frightening situation. And what even makes it more frightening is there's no indication in this letter that what was being taught in the church was wrong. I mean, there are other letters to other churches that talk about the false teaching that had come into the church, but here there's none of that. And so it seems without any challenge or charge or accusation of false teaching by Jesus to this church, the word of God was being taught correctly in this church. They were being taught what the scripture said, but they were still dying. Not only that, it was a church known for its vibrancy. It was probably growing, humming with activity, doing nice serve every month, right? So what was the problem? Jesus says to it, wake up. See, there's a, there's a bunch of people doing a bunch of good stuff, probably informed by the teachings of Scripture, but they're asleep. To the outsider, they may look like a strong Christian, but on the inside, they are dying spiritually. Like 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God knows the heart. So how's your heart? We have a very active church. We have a church that serves not only inside the walls, but outside so well. But how's your heart? When God looks at you, what, what is he seeing? What should he see? Jesus says in verse 3, after, after he tells them to wake up, after he tells them that he sees all their good works, he sees how they have a good reputation, he sees how everyone thinks they're this wonderful church, he says, but you're dead, he says this, remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. As Christians, what is it that we have received and heard? The gospel. The gospel which says, you are so bad, and so wicked that the God of the universe had to come and die in your place, but that you're also so loved that he wanted to do it. You see, Sardis was a church, probably like many churches in America, churches that might say it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're doing good work, as long as you're working hard to make the world a better place, as long as you're doing acts of justice and mercy, because that's what's important. What we believe is, is really more of a private thing because what we believe doesn't actually make that much of a difference. But Jesus is saying, if you aren't remembering what you have received and heard, if you've forgotten what it is you've believed, if you've minimized it, you may look alive, but spiritually you are dying. When was the last time you meditated on the gospel? Just meditated on it. 
not to do anything with it, just to, just to soak it in. When was the last time you opened scripture to read it, not to try to figure out what your next step is, but just, just to be washed over with it? I know many of you probably have started a Bible reading plan for the new year and you're trying to read the Bible in a year and I think that's great and I think we should all do that at some point. But I know some of you, you're a weekend and you're already way behind, right? And you're thinking, oh man, how am I ever gonna catch up? Well, let me encourage you, don't miss the opportunity to just marinate and read it, even if it means it's gonna take you two years. Martin Luther said we should tell each other the gospel daily because we're apt to forget it. So let me tell you again, the gospel is that you are so bad and so wicked that the God of the universe had to die in your place, but that you're also so loved that he wanted to do it. You see, when we read the Bible, we can get a lot of practical wisdom. We can get a lot of practical things to do. God's word can show us how life works best and what it is that we were designed for, and what it is we're required, what's required of us. But as we learn from the Apostle Paul in our study of Romans over the summer, in Romans 7.10, he says, the very commandment that promised life to me proved to be death. You see, as, as we're taught God's word, as we really read and understand what it says, what the law requires, it's too much. God's standard is too perfect. It's too holy. So without the gospel without knowing what it is that we believe, without Jesus, the practical application of the Bible ultimately brings despair and death. See, I bet there were a bunch of people in the church in Sardis who were working so hard to live godly lives for the sake of their city, but they also didn't want to offend anyone. They didn't want to offer the offensive message of the gospel that you actually are bad enough that you needed someone to come and die for you. And because they didn't want to offend, because they wanted to avoid the persecution that maybe would come with making their beliefs known, they minimized the gospel. And maybe this happened over time. In fact, the church in Sardis was probably started a, a generation or two generations before. And so it's kind of been passed down now to the next generation. It's a generation that, that maybe is doing a lot of good stuff, but they actually don't even know why it is they're doing all that stuff. They just do it. A flat tire won't go flat usually until it stops moving, right? So what would happen if you stopped moving right now? You're moving along and you, and you know that there's something wrong, but you just can't stop. You just keep going. But eventually, maybe you're forced to stop because there's always a stop sign somewhere down the road. And what would happen? You deflate. You see, your, your motion, your good works have been artificially inflating you, but you've been losing air this whole time. And Jesus says, no, stop. Remember what you have received and heard, the gospel. You're so bad, you're so wicked that you needed the, the son of God to come to earth and die in your place, but you're so loved that I wanted to do it. But this, this isn't about us individually. This is a letter written to a church. It's a charge to a church community. And so as we look at this letter, we have to think, wait, all right, is it possible that a church could be sound in teaching, 
It can have a great reputation in the community, a reputation of being alive, and yet it's dying, and yet it's falling asleep spiritually. Yes. In fact, I believe that that all churches naturally go to sleep unless they're continually rousing themselves up. The only churches who aren't asleep are the ones who are fearful of falling asleep. It's like when you had that 5 a.m. flight, right? You don't get any sleep that night because you're constantly waking yourself up because you're so worried that you'll oversleep. See, you and I, as a church family, we have to assume that we are going to fall asleep. Like Martin Luther said, we're going to forget the gospel. We're going to forget what it is that we first received and heard. We have to assume that as a, as a corporate level, as a church, that we will forget what we were originally put here to do. That's why it's so important that we repeat over and over again our vision statement, that we, that we rouse each other up to what it is that God's called us to do. Summit exists to build biblically functioning communities, to re- reach lost people, to connect in Christ-centered relationships, to teach truth, to serve others, and to worship God. And if we don't continually rouse each other to that, we're going to fall asleep. That's going to happen. And unless a church assumes that it's going to fall asleep, it assumes that we're going to lose our original sense of why we're here, we will fall asleep. And a church can fall asleep way before the reputation begins to erode. So how are we doing? Are we asleep? Have we been at rousing ourselves up? And this doesn't just happen with churches. This actually happens with any kind of organization. An organization, um, you know, at first starts great. And, you know, there's kind of this fiery burst of, of energy because you're serving a cause, you have a mission, But then over the next few years, the organization becomes an institution. And then the next thing you know, instead of serving a cause or a vision, you're simply serving the needs of the people who are in positions at that institution. It becomes institutionalized. And in that point, you're in danger of forgetting what it is you were built for. Now, this is bad when it happens to an organization or a company, but it's devastating when it happens to the church because the church's mission is Jesus. The book of Revelation says that we as the church are lampstands. What are lampstands? Well, it's that which the lamp is set upon. We're not the lamp. Jesus is the lamp. So the city, our city is supposed to look at us and not say, oh, that church is so good for our community. They're supposed to look at us and say, oh, so that's what Jesus looks like. Isn't he beautiful? So are we showing our city and our neighbors Jesus? Are we just doing a bunch of good stuff? Whenever I meet someone who, um, who goes to Summit for the first time, I, uh, I ask them how long they've been coming to Summit. And if they tell me they've been here for four years or more, I always respond the same way. I say, thank you. Thank you for staying Thank you for continuing to serve. Thank you for continuing to invite others into this place. And I know some of you, you just, you're barely hanging on here. And maybe you really are sad that things aren't what they used to be or you don't feel the same way that you did. And maybe you even wonder, like, is it, has it even made a difference? Does it even matter that you stayed? It has. I want you to know it's mattered a great deal 
because Summit's mission has always been Jesus. And, and by you staying, by you continuing to serve and participate as a church family, you have communicated to our city and to me the beauty of Jesus. And I want to say thank you for that. But we got to continue to do that. We got to continue to rouse each other up because if we don't, if we're not worried about falling asleep, we will fall asleep. So I know I started by saying this letter tells people how to be great. And you might be thinking, I think he forgot to tell us, uh, but I haven't. Because the book of Revelation in some ways is written, it's given to make a person who needs to be great to become great. And the only way that that can happen is if we see Jesus as he really is. The only way that can happen is if we see, if we encounter the Jesus that appears in Revelation 1, this awe-inspiring, mighty, powerful Jesus. And the way you see Jesus like that is repentance. I found it so interesting um, that when Jesus tells the church in Sardis to... uh, to remember what it is they first received and heard. He then says, keep it, which means to obey it, and then repent. Now, maybe I'm making too much of the word order, but that's curious to me. Logically, you think Jesus would say, remember what you have received and heard, repent and obey it. He doesn't say that. He says, obey it and repent. Why? Because the only way to become great, the only way you actually get to see Jesus as great and glorious as he really is, is if you're humbled. If you humble yourself and repent. The only way you know just how much you're loved by God is if you know just how far you've run away. The only way you know how much you are loved is when you're loved when you're good for nothing. To see Jesus as he really is, it starts, it has to start with humble repentance. John the Baptist once said, he must increase, so I must decrease. See, that's how it works. The only way it works. If you want to get more of Jesus in your life, if you you want him to be bigger in your life, if you want him to be more of a a powerful source, an encouragement in your life, if you want your life uh, to be reflective of who he is, he has to get bigger. And the only way that can happen is repentance. Repentance must become part of your life, not just something you did to get saved. Because greatness comes through repentance. So how? Well, we've talked about this before, but but worry presumes you're smarter than God. Worry is built on the belief that you know better than God how your life ought to go. And the only way out of worry, the only way to move into the greatness on the other side of worry is to humble yourself, to repent. Worry is always a form of arrogance towards God. It always is. And that peace and confidence and rest and security that come to people uh, comes through repentance of worry. You have to decrease so that he can increase. And some of you feel completely unworthy and guilty. 
You believe that God could never forgive you. Whatever it is you've done, you just keep replaying that over and over again in your mind. You beat yourself up about it. But don't you see what's happening? Your sins are more real than Jesus. How could anything you've ever done be more powerful than the blood of Jesus? So how do you move? How do you move from that place of self-wallow, self-despair, self-loathing, repentance? When you repent, Jesus' love for you becomes more real than all your sins and all your failures. He increases and you and your sins and your failures decrease. Greatness comes through repentance. Or maybe it is you're struggling with self-control or peer pressure. Repent. The way you make what Jesus thinks about you, what he asks of you, more important than what others think. The way that happens. And when that happens, what happens? You become more brave. You move in ways that are against the flow. You, you, you move towards greatness. The only way that happens is through repentance. People devoted to God are people who continually repent. To quote Martin Luther again, all of the Christian life is repentance. Why? Why? The reason repentance is a continual thing for us, why it can never be over and done with, why it's not just a one-time thing. Here's the irony. Because unless you know you're missing God, you will miss God. Unless you know that you're losing your first love, you will lose your first love. Unless you know you're falling asleep, you will fall asleep. It's only the Christian, and it's only the church that says we're not being what we ought to be that ever becomes what it ought to be. So we got to wake up. Because 2016 will require greatness from us. I don't know if it'll be cancer or an unexpected death or a new baby or a new relationship or an opportunity to speak truth to power. But I do know it will require more than you and I can offer in and of ourselves. It will require for us to decrease so that he can increase. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that that would happen in this church, that we would decrease so that you may increase. Jesus, I ask that we would be so enamored by the gospel, by the truth that you came after us even when we were sinners and you died for us because you wanted to, that that, that would so stay at the forefronts of our minds that our actions would be an overflow of that grace. Jesus, I ask that you would use this church in 2016 to show our city not just goodness, that we wouldn't just do things that make our city better, but that we would do things that make our city see you. Make our city say, oh, that's what Jesus looks like. He's beautiful. And we ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.